we turn to John chapter 13, verse 1 through 17. Here are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. This goes the reading of God's word. The, the grass withers and the flowers fall. Friends, please be seated. Would you join me in a quick word of prayer, asking God to bless these words today? Father God, as we come before you in the stillness, in the silence of things, You are Lord, and you are also our teacher. And so we pray that you will give us hearts to embrace what it is that you teach, ears that can truly hear what it is that you are saying, a truth that is not relative, but a truth that comes from you alone. And we pray that our response to all this is to simply say, thy will be done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1996, there was one of the greatest movies ever created and made. And it's a movie called Space Jams. And it had an all-star cast of Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, and then the basketball icons of Larry Bird and Michael Jordan. Actually, it was a terrible movie. But what made it work was that there was this featured song, and it was called, I Believe I Can Fly. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I dream about it every night and day. Spread my wings and fly away. 
That song alone won three Grammys. You put these lyrics behind a gospel choir, and there's this sort of soulfulness to it that resonated with just about everyone. I believe I can fly. The song is an ageless classic. And yet what made this song powerful is that it really brings out the human condition of what we all really long for. I believe I can fly. That's what we all long for. To now where you think about a place like Silicon Valley where they can do, have all the technology at their hands to where people like Elon Musk have companies where, uh, it's called Neuralink where they put brain processing chips into your brain and it can optimize the use of how you use your brain. And now there's biotech companies where there's a movement where people feel that since technology and science is so advanced, we should be able to attach wings to humans so that they can fly. These are the concepts. These are the ideas. And yet this is more than just about science. It's about the, the thing, it's about the idea that it's pervasive throughout all our lives, this idea that we can fly from tiger moms to tiger dads to producing kids that will outperform everyone else in America, from the rise of CrossFit to be bigger, better, faster. Whatever your niche is of how much you want to progress and, and be better at whatever that you want to do, it's all the same thing. I believe I can fly. We want to be better than everyone else. Listen, I have nothing against self-improvement. I have nothing against progress. I have nothing against all that. I think it's good. But progress without humility is a recipe for disaster. It's the stuff of tyrants. It's the stuff of abuse. See, this whole idea of I believe I can fly, I believe it kind of echoes back in Genesis. You can be like God. You can be like God. I believe I can fly. And yet today, what we witness here is that Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is God, does something counterintuitive to what Silicon Valley does, to what the entire nation does. That is, in the face and thick of things, his emphasis is not on how much better of a person he can be, but rather it's about humility. That is his heart's value. We're going to explore this in this text of what the disciple John brings out in this passage here. I want us to look at three things. First, the hands that are at work. Secondly, um, that, uh, first, the hands that are at work. Secondly, the hearts that are being worked on. And last of all, there's a hamper for our souls. I'll explain all that later. But let's look at the first part. Hands at work. It's in the face of a world that believes that I can fly, I can be better, I can progress, I can do anything, I can fly, that Jesus, the very Son of God, who is God, comes down to the world to do what? He washes feet. He washes feet that on all his list of things that he could have accomplished, Jesus wants the entire world to know 
I wash feet. And you've got to understand the timing of when this comes because when the gospel writer John writes this, he says that his hour has come to depart from the world, which means his final hour, an hour where he's supposed to reveal, you know, like his greatest values of who he really is. And yet what does Jesus do in this grand finale moment of revealing his glory to this world? He washes feet. John places this description of power attributed to Jesus in verse 3, where he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was now going back to God. This description alone is really communicating that Jesus possesses all things in his hands. They are powerful hands. So how does he utilize his hands? Scrubbing the feet of his disciples. Not exactly inspiring. No CEO on this entire planet would have thought washing feet can make such an impact. Maybe having lunch with employees, but wash feet? That's questionable. He doesn't use his divine hands to lead an army or to cure the world of its diseases, but to wash feet, to scrub the feet. And he does this in the middle of dinner. Out of all the places he could have done it, he does it in the middle of dinner. You know how awkward it is to enjoy your evening of dining with your your friends and uh, talking, and then all of a sudden, Jesus, in the middle of this dinner conversation, touches people's feet. The mood is not even set for this. Everyone will lose their appetite if you think about it. Peter calls out the elephant in the room to ask, Lord, do you really wash my feet? And when Peter says this, he, he, he's actually being a little in, indignant here, almost as, if, almost as if he's a little bit angry and annoyed about Jesus' act here. Because why would Jesus, who claims to be God, wash feet? In the back of Peter's mind, he is thinking, I know that you're God, and part of being God is that you want to be humble, which is respectable, but this this is too much. Jesus, this is just too much. Gods aren't supposed to wash feet. This is bad for your image, and it's just flat-out awkward. And yet, humility is actually awkward. But in a culture where we believe it's, uh, we can fly, it's actually hard to see. See, this word for humility, it gets thrown out a lot. But what do people really mean by it? What do people really mean in a world where people want to just fly? You know, I discovered this YouTube video. It was, uh, it was about Kobe Bryant, all his greatest highlights, and, it, you know, all his greatest highlights and what he was doing at best. And you know what the background music was? The background music was a, uh, a Christian song called How Great Is Our God. <laughs> I, I hope it was a joke. <laughs> Because if, if it wasn't, it's, it's a little bit disturbing. But I can't listen to that same song the same way because of that. And yet, what does it really mean to be humble? You watch celebrities receive all their accolades and their awards, and they tend to start out their speech by saying, I'm humbled, right? But then I am humbled as I receive this reward that projects how awesome I am. Is that hum- Humility? And you look at hashtags of such things as humble brag, 
Like you have to preface that before you tell everyone what, what great things that you've accomplished. Just, just, just don't say humble brag. That's not humble bragging. That's just, just brag. That's fine, <laughs> right? But humble brag. Humility today, it looks cool. It looks, it looks chic. And yet humility, the way that Jesus portrays it, that looks demeaning. No one in their right mind really envies Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. We, we tend to envy other people's stuff. We, we envy their talents, their gifts. We try to imitate their lives and what they do. Right? But no one envies Jesus. We look at Jesus' prayer life and we say, oh, that's a really nice prayer life, but we don't envy that. We look at how he serves the poor and, and he's, he's, he's just fellowshipping with people that are outcasts and we say, man, that's pretty cool, but we don't envy that. No one envies Jesus. And yet the irony of all this is that everyone is trying, busy trying to be like God, but nobody is imitating Jesus. Nobody is imitating Jesus for some reason. Because Jesus' version of humility, his powerful hands at work, scrubs the feet of disciples. And yet, as Jesus performs this act, he's working on the disciples' hearts, and perhaps yours and mine. Which brings us to the second point here. That Jesus tells his disciples, for anyone who wants to follow him, that if I, as Lord and teacher, wash feet. I want you to do the same. I want you to do the same. He's not telling them that we literally need to go around the world and wash everyone's feet. That's not the mission here. Because nowhere else in the Bible do you ever read the disciples washing feet again, right? You never read it in the New Testament. So what does it mean for us? He is saying, I want you to reflect true humility, Peter has this argument with Jesus, right? And because Peter is too humble to let Jesus wash his feet, and even after Jesus tries to reason with him, Peter's response gets even stronger, and he tells Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And the Greek translation is actually even until eternity. Those are strong words. Peter's fighting against this. So Jesus makes an even stronger statement. He says, if you do not let me do this, then you're not part of me. You know what Peter's response to this is? He freaks out. And he's like, okay, just tell me what to do. Here's my feet. Here's my hand. Here's my head. Just wash all of me. I'll be, I'll be humble. Just tell me what to do. I'll do more humble things uh, to be humble. But it, it doesn't really work like that, Peter. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus didn't wash feet as this way to tell the world, now what is the most demeaning thing that you can do with your life? Go and do it. That's not what Jesus is getting at. True humility wasn't limited to what Jesus did. It was a part of who he was and who he is. What was the ultimate motivation of Jesus' heart? Look at verse 1. He loved them to the very end. He loved them to the very end. True humility is love expressing itself by meeting and caring for the people around you 
that need it. Love has no limits that it is willing to go to the distance, even if it means something like washing feet. That's what this is about. See, this wasn't something that Jesus just did, but the heart of who Jesus was uh, was filled with love for his people. You want to be humble? Love people. Love people more. And that will humble you. Because if you're genuinely humble and love, it's going to look more like washing feet than flying. I know I have to check my heart on this all the time. You know, it's hard. It's hard to be a servant. I I remember this one pastor was saying, you never understand your servant heart until you're being treated like one. And boy, nowhere else do you feel more like a servant than when you have little children, right? Like my kids, they got sick while we came up here and my daughter was just uh, uh, coughing all the time and, and, you know, sneezing. And, you know, she has a lot of snot, so we'd always get the tissues. But, like, she doesn't ask nicely. She just says, tissues, tissues. And the box is right next to her, and, but we still have to pluck it out for her. And, you know, like by the 10th time, you're okay doing it, but by like the 13th time, you're just like, get it yourself, right? Or to wake up first thing in the morning and the first words that you hear are, breakfast, I want breakfast. And you're just trying to make it through the day like that. I believe I can fly. You know, I think the worst thing that can happen to us as a church is that we get everything we want, right? We get the thriving children's ministry. We have, like, multiplied by, like, five times the uh, people. The offering just comes in, like, flourishing and this and that. But if we have all of that, but we don't have the heart of Christ, there's no humility in our approach, I call that failing. I really do. Maybe I'm talking a big game, but I truly believe this based on John 13. I can be an awesome, amazing pastor, but if I'm failing my own family and serving them at home, not doing that lovingly, that that is not called success in God's eyes. That perhaps true humility is not about how high we can fly, but instead it's about washing feet. And that in this kingdom of God, it's more important to wash feet. That's what Jesus is getting at here for us. Where are you trying to fly? Where are you trying to fly more than actually trying to wash feet? Because all of us, we all have issues that we're working on, just like Peter does, right? You can't wash my feet, Jesus. And yet, Jesus provides this hamper for our souls. Where a hamper, you use, you use it to put, put away dirty clothes, and yet, here's what Jesus is doing, a hamper for our souls, which is our last point here. That in our obsession with flying, it's based on what we can do. And yet, I wonder perhaps how much of this idea of flying is based on a chip that we carry on our shoulder. I mean, when has our anger or bitterness or hate come from a place of love, come from a place of goodness? There has never been a time where we have lashed out in anger and thought to ourselves, wow, this comes from a place of well-being. No one is convinced of that. Instead, 
brokenness always produces brokenness. I believe I can fly makes it seem that all our problems would disappear if I'm just good at something. It's easier to be a strong advocate for social justice than to actually fight for our own spiritual lives. It's easy for us to be a professional, but harder for us to just simply be there for your family. Easy to make acquaintances and hang out and do small talk, harder to actually build relationship. Easier to go to church, harder to actually commit. Everyone wants to fly because it's terrifying at the end of the day to actually face ourselves, the real version of ourselves. Yet Jesus calls us to wash feet because he also wants healing for us. I said that true humility can only come from a place of love. And every time you wash feet, you, you can remind yourselves just how much I love you. That's Jesus' message to us that every time you wash feet, know that I love you. Notice that after Jesus washes their feet of the disciples, John records saying in verse 12 that he put on his outer garment and took his place. Put on his outer garment and took his place. But there's one detail he leaves out. There's no mention of the towel that is tied around Jesus. Maybe I'm reading a little too much into this, but throughout the Bible, there's this strange attention to detail when it comes to clothing, actually, and what people do with their clothes. So you find in places like 1 Samuel 15, 27, when Saul grabs and rips the hem of Samuel's cloak, symbolizing the loss of David's, king, uh, the loss of David's kingdom. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, the prophet Elijah, he throws his mantle, his clothing, over Elisha to indicate that he is the new successor. The tearing or the removal of one's garment displayed despair in places like Genesis 37, verse 29. Or it could also present mourning or a loss of status. Maybe it is here in John that he wanted to imply that Jesus took off the towel, but what if he didn't? What if the towel was still attached to Jesus? This whole scenario has been awkward thus far. And so what if to top it all off, Jesus has this nasty, moist, and pungent towel just wrapped around him, and Jesus is unapologetic about having it? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I've got your filth, and you can't have this back. But the human instinct is to say, I want my filth. Because somehow, in a weird way, our brokenness helps us to fly. That our resentment makes me energized to be a beast at the gym, or my hatred for my parents, it's what fuels me to succeed. No, I need my insecurities to help me make something of myself. And really, at the true, at the core of our being, is the sin that breaks us and makes us, makes it hard for us to face. And yet, here's Jesus saying, "I've got all your sins. I'm taking it for myself. You can't have it back. You can't have this back. Do you understand what I've done for you?" Jesus is showing us the distance that he is truly willing to go to actually love us. That he is going to do far more than to simply wash feet. 
He's going to cleanse us from our sin. In a world that's obsessed with flying, the Son of God uses his divine hands to come into the world, his hands and feet to be nailed on a cross, so that by his wounds you are healed. Because you actually see just how far he is willing to go to love you. And every time you find yourself washing feet of others, it's an opportunity to see how much and be, be reminded how much he actually does care for you, does love you. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? Because if you do, John says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And friends, I hope at New Life Fremont, we would experience what it's like to be blessed when we reflect the heart of Jesus together. Let me pray for us. Lord, in our culture to always want to do better and be the best version of ourselves, which is good, and yet when it's lacking the sense of humility, this heart of wanting to wash other people's feet around us, it means nothing to you, Lord. Like there's so much in our lives, we think it just means everything. And yet when we look at the cross, Jesus, you came down to give up your life to say, you are everything to me, in a sense. That's what we call an unfair trade and yet you're willing to do it and love us to the very end. I cannot comprehend it. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit to give us faith to kind of understand it, little by little. We pray, Jesus, as you have cleansed us, something more of just, just than feet, but to, to cleanse us of our sins, and, and you adamantly tell us we can't have it back. Thank you for your grace and mercy. May we simply take the posture of Jesus to wash feet because that is truly great in your eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.